Greetings, everyone. I want to start off today with some thanks and acknowledgements. Firstly, last Friday, I wrestled my imposter syndrome to the ground long enough to share it happened here with the red-handed fan community on Facebook. It was a bit cheeky of me, I know, because I was sharing my podcast in the fan group of another podcast, but I really don't see myself as a competitor to Hannah and Saruti. I'm a huge fan, and there have been loads of chats from other newbie podcasters in the group, so I decided to chance it. Well, the reception from the Spooky Bitches family was amazing. Just so supportive and positive. So if you are from the Red Handed group and have added me to your weekly listens, I am so thankful. Next, I want to say thanks to the people who have liked our Facebook page and the profile on Insta, and especially Katja, who messaged me to say she's not imaginary, probably. So now that I know I'm not just talking to myself, wrapped up in a curtain burrito, I'm feeling pretty excited about recording today. I'm also almost finished my new little faux studio, which is basically a Harry Potter room under the stairs that was originally used for storage, and I've kitted it out with wall-to-wall foam panels, and with any luck, I'll be recording in there from now on, and the sound should start getting better and better. Right, so with all the niceties wrapped up, let's get into the nasty stuff. Big trigger warnings here for discussions of suicide. This is It Happened Here, Episode 5, Death on Suite. It's 2016, July 24th, and the receptionist on duty at Spear Hotel has just taken a call from a guest in need of a maintenance man. Spear is a four-star hotel. It's in one of the country's oldest wine estates, just outside Stellenbosch which is in the Western Cape, about 45 minutes to an hour inland from Cape Town, depending on how much like a maniac you drive. Stellenbosch is lush. It's green with these rolling grape wine plantations and oak trees that line the streets. The typical style of buildings there is what we call Cape Dutch style. These are usually this bright stark white with thatched or dark roofs and these distinctive gables above the entrances. With the green lawns running up to the front porches and a backdrop of low mountains, it's quite clear why the winelands are among the top destinations in the country, even before you taste the wine. And Spear Wine Estate, started in the late 1600s, is one of the grandest old dames of the region. In addition to wine tasting and the restaurant, as I said, there is a hotel and conference venue. And on this particular weekend in 2016, they had been hosting all the bigwigs of Lou Gethin Sotheby's International Realty for their annual company conference. On the other side of the line that morning was Jason Ruder, the CEO of that group. Here's an aside for those of you who said you liked my tendency to wander down narrative tributaries. There are 11 national languages in South Africa. English, Afrikaans, Xhosa, Ndebele, Zulu, Tswana, Swati, Sutu, Southern Sutu, Venda, and Tsonga. Most people in the country are at the very least bilingual, and a significant number speak three or more languages. My home or first language is English, and Afrikaans, which has its roots in Dutch, is my very poorly maintained second language that I took at school. Also, Nditeta is Xhosa Kaniningli, which means I speak a little bit of Xhosa. Not very well, but I am trying to learn. I mention all of this to say I'm not really sure if 
Jason's surname is Rhoda or Rhoda or something in between. And you'll hear journalists and lawyers using both. So I'm putting that down to differences in languages of the speakers. If you're looking for this case, you spell that surname R-O-H-D-E. Anyway, back to the case at hand. Jason tells the front desk that he can't get into the ensuite bathroom of his hotel room. So front desk radios for maintenance and Desmond Daniels is the man on duty who heads over to room 221 with a screwdriver in hand to get the bathroom door open. It's just after 8am when Desmond knocks on that door of 221. Jason answers and lets him in, indicates the bathroom door, and quickly, with the turn of a screwdriver, that door is unlocked. Problem solved. But actually, the problems are just starting. On the other side of that door is Susan Ruder, Jason's wife, and she's lying there apparently dead with the electrical cord of her hair straightener wrapped around her slender neck. Jason starts CPR, but it's no use. She's gone. And that's the news that broke to the country that morning. A glamorous, gorgeous CEO's wife, mum to teen girls, dead in apparent suicide at just 47. I think it's the combination of things that kicked the story into the news. That she was a CEO's wife and that she was found at Spear, which is such a well-known destination. They also had a healthy, wealthy and glamorous life, living in a plush house with a big yard and swimming pool and sending their three girls to private schools. Oh, uh, private schools in South Africa are not the same as private schools in the UK, which are more akin to public schools in the UK, which is very confusing. Let me try that again. Public schools in South Africa are state-subsidized. Private schools are where you fork out shit-tons of money, So, as I understand it, in the UK, they call private schools public schools. We call public schools public schools and private schools private schools. Glad I've cleared that up. I hope you're all with me. (laughs) Jason and Susan lived in Bryanston, which is a pretty posh neighborhood in Johannesburg. It's a solid 12 hours drive from Stellenbosch or a two hour flight. Their children had not come away with them that weekend for the conference. So they had to learn the news of their mom's death on the phone. Those kids are Kate, who was 18 at the time and a matric pupil, which is our final year of high school, and twins Josie and Alex, who were 16 at the time. Susan had been a teacher, and then she'd lent her flair for design to their mutual house flipping business before Jason had joined and then climbed the ranks of the real estate firm. They were popular and well-liked, entertaining often, and she was, by all accounts, one of those super moms running their family's lives with a plum and some are still managing to look put together all the time. Her death at her own hand, nonetheless, was a total shocker for friends and family. Jason's brother-in-law, Peter Norton, describes that awful day, saying how the news of Susan's death was met with screaming and wailing in his house. They lived quite close by to Stellenbosch, though they drove over to Speer and found Jason still in the hotel suite, looking devastated and shocked. Peter describes holding his hand in silence while the family members, including her parents, began to arrive at the hotel. But the rumour mill started churning quickly, and on 11 August, just two weeks later, the media breaks the story that many armchair analysts had been predicting. The Sunday Times, for example, 
runs an article by Nashira Davids with the title Mystery Deepens in De- Death of CEO's Wife. Nashira quotes the police spokesperson, Captain F.C. von Veik, who confirms that an inquest docket had been opened and the investigation had changed to murder after the postmortem was conducted. Nashira goes on to quote Daniel Witz, who is Jason's family lawyer. He says Jason is focusing on his family and his daughters. Quote, they are still in shock and mourning. They are sticking together and supporting each other through this very tragic and difficult period. Witz also said an independent doctor had been appointed to perform further forensic examinations. Days later, on 23 August, police arrest Jason in Bryanston on suspicion of murdering his wife. Jason initially appears in the Randberg Magistrates Court, which is in Johannesburg, and he also is facing an additional charge of obstruction of justice. He is then transported back down to Stellenbosch to face trial in the Stellenbosch Magistrates Court. And that trial was recorded and streamed by South African media in near real time. It was one of the most prolifically covered cases with blow-by-blow of testimony and cross-examination available for all to watch, and most of it's still up on YouTube. Through testimony and evidence, we learn that Susan's seemingly blessed life and marriage had actually been crumbling for months, ever since Valentine's Day 2016, when she'd found a card made out to Jason from his mistress, Jolene Altersky. Yes, The other woman in this case is really called Jolene. But she doesn't have flaming locks of auburn hair that Dolly describes. She was a black-haired beauty, a realtor from the same company, but based in Cape Town. Susan is understandably pissed. She demands that Jason call Jolene on speakerphone in front of her and break off the affair, which he does. And they begin the tedious process of fighting, uncovering truths, couples counselling and trying to put things back together. One day when I'm braver, I will treat you to the metaphorical crime scene that was my own divorce and why this case pushed all my buttons during the research. I am not afraid of oversharing. In fact, my friends would say that it's bang on brand for me. And if my ex wanted to be described better, he should have behaved better. But that is a story for another day. We have a lot of insight into this putting things back together process because the WhatsApp messages between Susan and Jason all became part of the court record. So we have texts from Susan saying things like, I hope you and she rot in hell together. And I'm sick of that witch controlling my life. You let that bitch into my life and I'm taking her out. You two assholes think you can control what I do, what I know, while you carry on like fucking twits whenever you want to. So there's a lot of anger. But by July 19th, it seems that they've reached some sort of understanding. Susan texts him, saying, Thanks for picking us over the hall, and thanks for cutting her out completely. I so appreciate you never speaking to her again. I knew that you could turn your life around, and you've shown me that you can. Despite this, in the build-up to the annual conference, Susan is clearly once again feeling suspicious about her husband's behaviour and decides that she will be accompanying him to Spear despite the rule that spouses were not invited. 
The stories that have come out about her during this time paint her as sad, yes, but mostly angry and determined. She goes and gets Botox and a bunch of other beauty treatments. She gets her hair done just before they leave and gets some new clothes. She is going to come face to face with 37-year-old Jolene and she's going to damn well look amazing when she does. On Saturday 23rd, she takes her therapist with the news that she had finally shaken Jolene's hand and like the bad bitch she was, she says to her, I hope I never meet you again. She tells the therapist it left her feeling in control. A few hours later, though, that control is slipping. Susan's reportedly drinking heavily, and Jason is behaving, as we'd say in essay, like a doer, which is an Afrikaans swear word akin to calling someone an arsehole, although it refers to another orifice. Despite the rising tension, They've got through the big dinner and the dancing afterwards, and Jason wants to head to a private little after-party that's happening in one of the suites. But Susan has had enough. She demands he comes back to their room. He goes into the bathroom to text Jolene to tell her that he's not going to make the after-after drinks, and Susan busts him at it. This escalates into a rip-roaring fight, which turns physical. Jason tells the court that when he tried to leave the room to go and join the after-party, Susan was standing in his way, and he grabbed her by the bathrobe and tried to pull her out of the way. According to the testimony from his lawyer, this is a quote, he grabbed her neck with his right hand and literally pushed and pulled her out of the way. As he tried to leave, she grabbed his collar and he swung around and he hit her on the face with the back of his hand. So Jason storms out of the room and she follows him in her dressing gown, dragging his ass back to their room. The way he tells this in court, it rubs me up the wrong way, to say the very least. He paints this picture of her as a harpy, belligerent and irrational. The idea of her fetching him in her bathrobe is shared as if to say, look at this hysterical woman embarrassing me in front of my colleagues. Whereas I read it like, look how far he pushed her. But I've already said where my sympathy lies, so take that statement with a liberal helping of salt. Jason says on the way back to their room, which takes them along an outside path, Susan was yelling and pulling at him, and while trying to ward off her attacks, his elbow connected with her nose, and she fell over a low returning wall, scraping her head and leg. Back in the room... They continue yelling at each other, and he says, according to his testimony, that he's done, he wants a divorce, and that they can deal with it when they get back to Joburg. They get into bed, still angry, and he drifts off to an uneasy sleep. Around 7am, Jason is awoken by Susan getting out of the bed, but he rolls over and goes back to sleep after he sees her walk past and into the bathroom. She slams the door behind her. About an hour later, he's up and needing to get ready for the day, but she's still locked in the loo and she won't answer him. He calls her phone and hears it ringing through the door, but she won't pick up. Eventually, he has had enough and he puts that call through to reception. And that brings us full circle to the opening of the door. It is at this moment of the lock turning that two versions of the story splinter off away from each other. 
You see, what maintenance man Desmond and husband Jason describe on the other side of the bathroom door is either a tragic suicide by a distraught and heartbroken woman or the deliberate murder and cover-up by her scheming husband. Jason says it was he who opened the door, finding it partially blocked. He sees his wife's feet on the floor and realises that it's her weight holding the door closed. So he forces it open a bit more, manages to squeeze himself through and finds her, still dressed in her robe, half hanging, half crouched against the door, the cord of her straightening iron wrapped tightly around her neck and tied to the other end of the hook at the back of the door. He tries to lift her and calls for Desmond to come into the bathroom. Desmond enters and gets the cord off her neck. They lay her down on the floor and Jason starts CPR while Desmond calls for help. Desmond, on the other hand, tells the investigators and the court that it was he who first got through that door, that it swings open just fine, and Susan is lying on the floor, naked and apparently strangled with the cord wrapped loosely around her neck. Just because that version fits in with what the prosecutor alleges doesn't mean Desmond is the perfect witness. In fact, the defense does a pretty good job at poking holes in his version, tackling him on all kinds of details and discrepancies. So what about the forensics, the science? What does that say about the scene and who is telling the truth? State pathologist Dr. Akmal Kutsia Khan finds that the cause of death is asphyxiation and strangling. He says that the body tells a story of multiple wounds and blows. And he eventually says that that she died just before 6am on July 24th making the case that their fight escalated until Jason snapped and killed her before climbing into bed and pantomiming the finding of her to fabricate the suicide story. The defense's own pathologist carried out a second post-mortem and he suggests instead that Susan had committed suicide, hanging herself after 7am that morning. So at this point, it's really shaping up to be a hotly contested case with no clear winners, right? No, there's actually a lot of evidence that Jason's uh, version can't count for. For starters, there's the tiny traces of blood and fecal matter in the room. Traces that suggest she died by his hands outside the bathroom, perhaps losing control of her bowels, which is a common physiological response to death, before being dragged naked into the bathroom, cleaned up and tied up to give the appearance of suicide post-mortem of her neck, tissues and skin too, they point to manual strangulation rather than hanging, or specifically that the ligature imprint abrasion mark is consistent with post-mortem application to the neck, aka it was tied there after she was dead. Additionally, the manufacturers of that straightener say that the cord simply wasn't up to carrying her weight, even if it was a mere 53 kilos which is roughly like 110 pounds off the top of my head. And then there's this fact, and this is bizarrely a really big one for me, and I can't even 100% explain why. It's that her gown, when they took her body away, was inside out, and the belt bit that you used to tie it around the waist was left in the bedroom. There's just something that doesn't fit right to me about this incredibly put-together woman who chooses to die in that way. 
Anyway, it says to me that Desmond was telling the truth and that Jason put the gown on her hastily when Desmond went to fetch help. And let's go back to Jason's actual word, his testimony about what went down that evening. I am not a pathologist and I'm not a psychiatrist, but I do understand linguistics and narrative, and there's some red flags that jump out to me in his wording. For example, he says that when they went to sleep, she must have gotten into the bed because she woke up in bed next to me. Not, she was in bed when I woke up. Or, I woke up when she was getting out of the bed. It just has the ring of a story you tell, rather than a collection of your, from your own personal perspective. And when he's demonstrating how he lifted her body, the judge asks him where his hands were, and he says, well, she was facing me, so my hands would be on her back. Not were or are on her back, would be. It's another linguistic tell, and this is the academic term, making shit up. When he calls the front desk, he said nothing about his wife being inside the bathroom, about being worried about her. He simply says the door is locked from inside and he needs the maintenance guys. That door, by the way, like many hotel and public bathrooms, can be both locked and unlocked from outside, using a coin or butter knife or teaspoon if you don't have a screwdriver handy. That's something I think even I would have thought of in that moment of panic before calling reception. But no, Jason calls in maintenance because he wants a witness to finding her. And when his cover-up is less than proficient, he's relying on his word being taken more seriously than the maintenance man's word, which is something I suspect everything in his lived experience has reinforced for him. And that's because I believe that he is the textbook example of the whole idea of many psychopaths going on to find success in the corporate world and becoming CEOs. I suspect Jason would tell his wife, his mistress, and his marriage counsellor whatever he needed to say to manage them and their expectations so he could carry on. Ultimately, in November 2018, Judge Salichlope looks at the balance of evidence and finds Jason Ruder guilty of both murder and the obstruction of justice, sentencing him to an effective 20 years. At the time, his daughters were reportedly still supporting him and believing him, a fact that came up in Susan's mom's victim impact statement. She said, quote, During the trial, we had demands from the defense to release the funds from Susan's estate, as they were rightfully Jason's, and he needed them to fund his defense. Undue pressure was put on us, and we believe on the girls, who accused me, a trustee, of being spiteful and not helping their dad. She continues, Even now, having flown to them the day after the judgment, we feel the same alienation as if we're in some way responsible for the predicament their father finds himself in. We will always love the girls more than they know. We will support them and do whatever we can to get them through these awful days. But I do need them, at some point, to respect our loss and our heartache and how impossible this has been for us. Since this is such a recent case, I must say that it's still ongoing. Jason lodged an appeal, the first of which was denied by Salichlope, so he took it to the next level and was given leave to appeal. Jason has been out on bail awaiting this and his case will be heard by five judges 
in the Supreme Court of Appeal next month, August 2021. A large part of his appeal rests on the original judge rejecting the testimony of his forensic psychiatrist hired for his defence, who claimed that Susan showed signs of being suicidal. Instead, the judge favoured the testimony of Susan's own therapist, who said that she wasn't suicidal. So the appeal is built on, among other things, claims that Salih Lope showed bias in her in the original trial, and several legal and journalistic commentators say that it isn't far-fetched that he'll be found not guilty on appeal. Come August, I will definitely be following the story very closely and will give you an update. As always, my sources for this have been linked in the show notes. Please come find us on social. We're on Instagram at it.happened.here and on Facebook. Search for It Happened Here podcast. It Happened Here is a ready for production.